0: Welcome to the Cato Institute, Um, I'm David Bowes, I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute and it's my honor today to be able to uh, introduce and moderate this program. We hear a lot these days, for the past few decades, about moral decline in America, moral decline in the world, Um, covers a lot of different areas. Not clear that those are always the most relevant areas to what we might consider public morality. Bill Bennett made a career out of talking about moral decline. Lots of radio talk shows have that as a common theme. Most days, there's an op-ed in The Washington Times decrying moral decline in America. And indeed, I saw a poll recently that said three quarters of Americans think that we are in a period of moral decline. So it seems pretty convincing, but there is an argument that we're in an era of moral progress. And I think more people are starting to speak up on the side of both moral progress and economic, tangible progress in the world. As I point out in my own forthcoming book, The Libertarian Mind, we have in fact seen a reduction in the world in war, slavery, violence of all kinds. We've seen a tendency toward individual rights, economic freedom, and democracy. Uh, Those are important elements of progress, including moral progress. The new issue of Cato Policy Report, the newsletter for Cato sponsors, includes a transcript of a speech uh, given at this podium not long ago by Steven Pinker, in which he says, the world is getting better and better, so why is everybody so pessimistic? He tries to understand why is the world, uh, why are people so pessimistic? And the Cato Institute has created a website called humanprogress.org, over 700 sets of data on this website, everything from childbirth to women's rights to democracy, that suggest a great deal of progress in the world. I'm not sure that um, website, though, tells you why this progress has come about, and that's one of the topics in a new book from Henry Holt Publishers that we'll be talking about today. The author of this book, Michael Shermer, is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, a monthly columnist for Scientific American, and a a regular contributor to time.com, and a presidential fellow at Chapman University. He is the author of numerous previous books, including The Believing Brain, From Ghosts and Gods to Politics and Conspiracies, How We Construct Beliefs and Reinforce Them as Truths, The Mind of the Market on Evolutionary Economics, Why Darwin Matters, and The Science of Good and Evil. Today, he's here to talk about his newest book. Please welcome the author of The Moral Arc, How Science and Reason Lead Humanity Toward Truth, Justice and
1: Freedom, Michael Shermer. Thank you, David. Hi, everybody, thanks for uh, having me here. Thanks for the snow. It was 80 degrees on Saturday when I left Southern California for my book tour, so. And I forgot a jacket. (laughs) I don't even have a jacket, I just have this. uh... Oh well, you make adjustments I guess. The the Human Progress website is really quite good. I wish that would have come out when I was doing my research because there's a lot of great resources there. And actually there's quite a few of us uh, you know, talking about moral progress—it's not—it's not really popular. Um, there, as as Pinker described here, there's reasons why pessimism sells better <laughs> than optimism. But um, so for me, it's, an, it's sort of a natural extension of what I do for my day job. We're a pro-science magazine; science and reason is our thing. And I've written books and and talked quite a lot about science and pseudoscience, science and religion, uh, science and morality. To what extent can science? have anything to say about morality. And the standard line is that nothing, it has nothing to say about right and wrong and human values. That's a whole separate thing, either religion or philosophy. And, and so I disagree with that. And that's part of one of the theses of, uh, of my book is that science and reason have been the primary drivers of moral progress and, and, uh, and not religion as much. My title comes from, of course, the inspirational speech, probably the second greatest speech Martin Luther King Jr. gave in, the climax of his uh, march from Selma to Montgomery, which uh, beautifully portrayed in the film that's up for an Oscar now. Uh, I didn't know that making that a film. I just thought it was a great story uh, of what it took to get to get there. And uh, and the speech was given not on the steps of the Capitol. Pr- pretty much every story you'll ever read about the Selma march that that King gave this famous speech from the steps, Capitol steps at Montgomery, and and he didn't. Wallace wouldn't let him on the on the government property there and so they had to do it on the back of a flatbed truck uh, parked in front on the street. Anyway, that was sort of interesting. And uh, so he was echoing a 19th century uh, abolitionist preacher named Theodore Parker who said uh, that about the moral universe, my eye reaches but little ways uh, and and I can't tell for sure but it looks to me like the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice and that's where King got that. And in fact, it worked. The march, the civil rights movement, the demanding of equal rights, um, uh, resulting in the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that summer, about four or five months later, you can see Dr. King standing there looking over President Johnson's shoulders, signing that into law. In fact, of course, the franchise, granting the franchise to all adults in a a society is uh, uh, what we mean by a liberal democracy where everybody gets to vote. So this particular data set, I'll have quite a few here today, Uh, shows that um, there were none in in 1800. Um, You know, in fact, uh, it wasn't really until after the First World War and then after the Second World War where there was a real burst in the spread of democracies. The Polity Project rates democracies on a 1 to 10 scale. You know, some democracies are better than others. Some are more transparent. Some are more corrupt. Uh, Fortunately, in ours, you know, money doesn't influence our democratic process. I think America slid from an eight to a seven. In any case, um, uh, so that, that's a sign of, of moral progress. If you think that uh, expanding the moral sphere to include more and more people as having equal rights, then that, that's a, a sign of progress. Um, part of it, of course, is the granting of the franchise to women and women's rights. Uh, and you can see the process here. Um, get our little, oh, I have the, uh, no, I have the slide clicker thing. That's okay, I'll just use the, uh, I'll just use my hands. <laughs> uh, anyway, you can see the United States, uh, I mean, we didn't pass it until 1920, but we're still quite a ways ahead of everybody else. What I found that was interesting is the island, these little areas in the 1800s where women were granted the right to vote. Pick Island, of course, there's like 12 people there, so easy to get a majority. The Isle of Man, Cook Islands, New Zealand. Um, and now uh, pretty much every country in the world has it with the exception of Saudi Arabia, perhaps this year in 2015. And I like the Vatican City said, never. <laughs> uh, how do rights come about? Well, they start from the bottom up. Uh, it's a process of the people that don't have the rights demanding that they have them. They, they march, they protest, they say this is not right and we're not gonna put up with this anymore. And I came across uh, this uh, amazing photograph of one of the early, um, uh, uh, rights revolution leaders Inez Milholland in her march on Washington D.C. Here in 1913, she led this march on this white stallion. I just found this magnificent. I would follow her anywhere on that white stallion, <laughs> and it would be hard to to really object to that and stand in front of that. <clears throat> Horses are big. Uh, and since then, so I have a chapter on um, you know civil rights, women's rights, gay rights, animal rights, so on. So I'll be talking about those in turn. But you can really see the turning point here in the mid-1990s when the percentage of um, 24 to 25 to 32-year-old women with at least a four-year college degree went from, in 1970, an 8% um, gap to essentially reversing it to a 7% gap ahead of men and crossing that line in the early 1990s. And having a college degree, of course, correlates with economic prosperity, so the closing of the gap again, from 25 to 34 year olds is sort of in the peak of when you really start uh, generating your your income from 67% difference uh, in 1980 to a 93% difference in 2012. You'll often see a much smaller number, but like a 73% or 77% figure, but that's because they're counting all age groups. And so what the, the, the rights revolutions often happen is there's a, there's a, a gap demographically across time, but this is the most important one, um, I think, that shows progress. And now we're in the middle of a another rights revolution, and the amazing thing about this rights revolution is that we can see it unfolding before our eyes and keep track of who's against it and who's for it and how the change comes about. Of course, it began in 1979 in Stonewall in New York with the uh, protests and uh, uh, and the, But you can see the changing attitudes from the early 1970s, uh, when most people believed that um, gays should not have equal opportunity, gay marriage should not be legal, to it crossing over in the mid 2000s to over 50% um, for most people in Gallup, this Gallup polls and the general social survey polls. Uh, even the president said and changed his mind in 2008 he said i believe marriage is between a man and a woman i am not in favor of gay marriage and 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 he's a liberal saying this and now in 2012 he says i've just concluded that for me personally it's important for me to go ahead and affirm that i think same-sex same-sex couples should be able to get married and you can see where it crossed pretty close to where he just right after he changed just around, around the time he changed his mind that's, of course, what politicians do, but in fact, that's what everybody does. Uh, people just, they get they get swept along with the tide of the changing rights revolution, and those who are opposed to it, they just quit talking about it. Rarely does anybody come out and publicly say, I changed my mind. You have to if you're the president, I guess, but most people just change their mind quietly and, 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 say, and don't say anything more about it. In more secular European countries like Germany, gay marriage and, um, same-sex uh, same marriage and gay rights is really, truly non-controversial. These are friends of my wife, who's German. Uh, Heiko and Jürgen got married, and, and th- there's lots of same-sex marriages there. It's really no big deal. No one ever talks about it. It's just a non-event. And they look at us like we're just barbaric uh, for even having this conversation. And uh, so you can see how it comes about in terms of age. The millennials are the most in favor of it, people born after 1981. Generation X is lagging just a little behind, people born after 1965. Us baby boomers are just really slowly being pulled up with our fingernails dug into the past. And hanging on for dear life for the old school is the silent generation. Uh, not likely to give it up, but they'll all be gone soon enough anyway. <laughs> <clears throat> that, that's an old observation, actually, uh, called the Plunk problem, that... Uh, that Max Planck observed that in science, revolutions only change when the old guard dies out <laughs> and the new guard comes up, the new Turks come up with that. Um, and so who op- opposes this? Um, of course, um, primarily uh, religious fundamentalists and, and literalists. Uh, white evangelicals, black Protestants, white mainline Protestants, and Catholics have been largely against it. And it's, the revolution has been led primarily by the religiously unaffiliated. And to give credit where credit is due, the Episcopalians and secular Jews were in favor of gay marriage uh, long ago. Uh, but, um, and, and, and by the way, I have some good news for you libertarians that are also in favor of the legalization of pot and gay marriage. <clears throat> I, I found biblical support for both. <laughs> Um, In Leviticus chapter 20, it says that if a man lies with another man, he must be stoned. (laughs) So other signs of of progress, the abolition of of torture, uh, you know, collapsed by the mid-19th century. The United States, of course, uh, its injunction against cruel and unusual punishment would include torture. Apparently not enhanced interrogation, but these are just words. Uh, Certainly nothing like what uh, used to be fairly common like breaking on the wheel um, after you poke the guy full of holes and burn him and then you strap him to a wheel and break him with uh, hammers or um, burning at the stake or sawing somebody in half upside down so it takes longer to die. Um, Impaling on a pole or scraping where you just sort of rip the skin off somebody. Um, and the reason this happened is not because of some uh, new religious interpretation of the Bible or a revelation from the deity and an interpretation of that. No, it came about from enlightenment philosophers trying to think, how can we improve society through some rational means of changing social policy and political policy? People like Jeremy Bentham and Cesare Beccaria, particularly Beccaria's 1764 book on essays, an essay on crimes and punishments. This was the first to propose the idea of proportionality. That is, there ought to be a fixed proportion between crimes and punishment. So that that was a new idea. They he invented that idea that, that we if you want to change human behavior and get people to do something different, you know, rather than just punish them, rather than just retributive justice, like just give them their just dues, lock them up, and that's it. Let's see if we can improve society by changing people, by giving them different motivational structures like proportionality. That book is still in print, by the way. Um, And uh, as well as same kind of arguments, not only against torture, but also against the death penalty. And in Europe, the death penalty is dead. Um, And in the United States, it's on its way to extinction. Um, Here's some of the more colorful ways that humans have practiced killing each other. Uh, This is the earliest portrayal of an execution ever found uh, by an archaeologist, I think it's something like 30, 20, 20,000 years old, uh, and, and he's, he interprets it as as an execution because you have 10 archers and 10 arrows in the, in the guy lying on the ground. So this comes from Christopher Bum's work on um, the studying of capital punishment amongst hunter-gatherers today, and then in the archaeological record to the extent that you can figure that out. And, and the reason for this is because, um, in order to have a, a relatively peaceful, just society that's that, that that's stable, you have to deal with free riders and bullies, and so there's all sorts of ways of dealing with them nonviolently. You know, shunning, gossiping about them, embarrassing them. Uh, not inviting them to your party, <laughs> uh, all sorts of social pressures you can put on people that aren't nice, that don't play nice by the rules. But ultimately, uh, all, pretty much every, almost every group um, that Bohm has found practices capital punishment. Uh, just because if you have a large enough population, by chance you're going to get somebody who is just, uh, just a real bastard, who just will not come around, who's just a ni- not a nice fellow, a real bully. And so he's got several stories about how they do it, and it's, uh, it's an eye-opener. Uh, I mean, they don't have some of the more techniques, like uh, humane techniques, like the guillotine or the firing squad or old Sparky, the electric chair, or the um, or the um, process of uh, botched executions through uh, through uh, uh, drugs. Uh, But instead, no, they just take them out for a a hunting expedition and they don't come back with them. And there's just various ways you get rid of them: throw them off the cliff. Bash them on the head, fill them up with arrows, that sort of thing. Um, but but that's a fairly barbaric way of dealing with uh, with problems like that. In the United States, the death sentences has been collapsing. The, the the granting of death sentences has dropped dramatically since the uh, mid nineteen nineties, which was reflecting the crime wave of the seventies and eighties, as more and more death penalties were handed out. And then lagging slightly behind that are the number of executions that are actually carried out. That's also on the decline. As you probably know, most um, most criminals on death row die of old age before they're uh, executed, which costs, I don't know, was it something like 100% more to house a, somebody on death row? It's, it's, it's quite a bit more. And, um, and so I'm predicting that if you follow that curve out um, and the rate that states are changing their uh, policies on um, the death penalty, it'll be extinct by the mid-2020s, like 2025 to 2030, sometime in there. There won't be any more death penalty in the United States. That's my prediction. We'll see. Uh, The abolition of slavery, um, of course, was driven, um, as we know, by Quakers and Mennonites and so on. So yes, there were religious people who um, promoted the abolition of slavery. This is the rate uh, at which states started to abolish it. But really, if you look at what they were inspired by, if you look at what the abolitionists wrote about, they were primarily inspired by the United States Declaration of Independence and the French, the French Revolution's declaration of the uh, rights of man. And, uh, and, and so what you see in their literature is the talking about of, of, of equal rights and, 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 and rights were invented in the 18th century. And there's nothing in, in biblical scripture or holy books that says um, that you know, slavery is wrong. So in that sense, you know, if, the, if the creator of the universe wrote a book uh, it, that, that purports to be a guide to morality, um, how come he never mentioned that enslaving people was wrong? Not only does he not mention this, he says that, you know, here's all the different ways you should do it and how you should treat your slaves and so forth. Um, So, it really doesn't come about until Enlightenment philosophers created the idea of equal treatment under the law, that people should never be treated as a means to an end, but always as an end to themselves. Immanuel Kant, Thomas Jefferson, John Locke, and so forth came up with these ideas. So how far is the moral arc bent? I claim that today's conservatives are more liberal than liberals were in the 1950s. Just think about that for a minute. you know, just think, but social attitudes, I'm not talking about ec- economic policy, but just social attitudes of how people today treat you know, blacks and women and minorities and it, it, it so forth, gays, whatnot, animals, compared to the, say the 1950s. And uh, so I'll come back to that in just, just a moment. Now there's of course exceptions, what about terrorism? So I have to address this issue because it's in the news pretty much every day. So it's a problem, but I'm not sure it's a problem really in, uh, of, what, of what we're told we should be concerned about although it may work uh, by terrorizing governments into spending trillions of dollars on saving just a handful of lives. Uh, but in fact, the, the, the real supposed real, real threat was debunked by political scientist Erica Chenoweth, who has this really amazing data set for the last three quarters of a century or so of every campaign for political change, both violent and nonviolent, and, and then track the percentage of successful campaigns so nonviolent campaigns are about twice as successful as violent campaigns. And and then partially successful, again, nonviolent are twice as successful as, as violent. And then failed attempts at political change, uh, violent campaigns are, are, are much more likely to fail. And she tracks it over time, and you can see where it shifts in the 1950s and continues on much more dramatically um, today. She points out that no no terrorist organization has ever overturned a state and established a new government, for example. And, and so if, you're, if, if we're worried about terrorists, like taking over the country or something like that, that that's not going to happen. Uh, I mean, even ISIS, ISIL is not even really a state, even though it calls itself a state. Um, it, of course, you can get into power and then become a corrupt government like in Syria, uh, but, or, or case of the, what the Nazis did, but, but that's different than the, the terrorist threats. So in terms of it as an existential threat, I think it's not, unless you want to argue that spending trillions of dollars to prevent even one death by terrorism, maybe it works to that extent. Um, What about Donald Sterling, Trayvon Martin, Ferguson? These are stories in the news. Um, Well, okay, Donald certainly. I'm from L.A., you know, the owner of the Clippers. Um, And there was, you know, hue and cry about this. It was in the news every night. And... uh, People like, um, you know, civil rights leaders today were calling for, you know, a crisis intervention that Americans are more racist than they've ever been, or at least as racist as they were in the 1950s. Uh, But if anything, actually, the Donald Sterling case shows quite the opposite, that, you know, here he, in private to his mistress, he complains about, you know, African Americans at his game. Well, most old guys in the nineteen fifties thought like he did, and, and they weren't particularly private about it. They, they they were pretty vocal about it. I mean, my, my fathers, my bio dad and my stepdad, they you know they weren't like Donald Sterling, but they weren't particularly quiet about their attitudes. It, it, it was just sort of understood that's how people thought, and they don't think like that anymore. Um, the Trayvon Martin case, Ferguson's, you know, these are tragedies, but on the other hand, the um, you know police brutality and, and and the inner city crime was much higher in the 1950s and 1960s than it is today. Uh, Max Roser is another great data source, by the way, in addition to the human progress uh, for tracking uh, optimistic trends about uh, human civilization and and things like this. Has this nice data set uh, on lynchings from the late 1800s through, well, pretty much zeroes out by 1950. Um, And and, and remember when um, interracial marriage was a big controversy? Well, I, I don't really, actually. It was so long ago. Uh, but people used to make arguments that blacks and whites should not be allowed to marry. If you look at 1959 there on the far left, you know, 4% of Americans uh, approved of marriage between blacks and whites. I don't know anybody that, that even discusses it anymore, uh, although I am sort of perplexed by the 87% figure. You mean there's 13% of Americans who said they would you know not approve of a marriage between a black and white i mean why isn't it a hundred percent i don't know you know maybe there's just a few outliers something like that and then finally i have to address the charlie hebdo mass murder i'm I'm a little worried about this one because i'm a magazine publisher and i don't want to end up like this guy now fortunately skeptic doesn't really deal with islam we don't do that and 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 and, and, and portraying uh, famous people in, 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 you know, sort of nasty, sarcastic, satirical ways is not our style. Uh, but still, the, you know, the freedom to be able to do that um, is, is a real issue. So let's address what the real problem is here. Um, but I'm going to give you a little quiz, see if you remember. What did the murderers shout when they killed the staff at Charlie Hebdo? Moses rocks, Jesus saves, Vishnu lives. Buddha thrives, atheist rule, or Allah Akbar. Well, of course, you know the answer. And, and, and so this is the elephant in the room. I mean, um, all my liberal friends are sort of wringing their hands about this. You know, We, we really know what the problem is, but we don't want to say, because we don't want to offend people. Liberals are in favor of free speech, but liberals are also in favor of not being too offensive. Sometimes those things are gonna conflict. So I think it's good to, to, to clarify that what we're criticizing Whatever your style is, mine is to just address claims, you know from a scientific perspective, a rational perspective. I'm not interested in laughing at people, though humor works for other other people well. But it's the ideas I think we should be focusing on, not the people. So saying but even saying something like religion is the problem, it's too broad. it doesn't doesn't help us understand the particular cause of something. And even saying religious extremists are a problem is not not correct either. I mean, Jane's, are religious extremists. I mean, they are way out there. They, you know, they, they won't kill anything. They'll, they they don't even want to kill a bug. They'll they'll sort of crawl on the ground and move around, not not to you know hit hit a gnat or an ant. Okay, that's extreme. But I'm not worried about the Janus coming to the Skeptic Magazine headquarters and, and causing problems. Um, it, so it's violent religious extremists, in particular those that hold beliefs that lead to violence to lead to violence, that's the problem. So it's the parts of Sharia law that lead to violence that I think are the ideas we should be focused on, you know, debunking bad ideas. Uh, The analogy I make in the book, by the way, is I call it the witch theory of causality. If you believe that women cavorting with demons in the middle of the night causes bad weather and crop failures and disease, then you're either insane or you lived 500 years ago when everybody believed that. And to that extent, I mean, were these people immoral for burning women at the stake? No, I don't think so. They were mistaken. They believed they were doing something quite moral. We're helping our group, we're helping our community, we're solving this problem. Of course, they didn't know about rights back then because rights weren't invented, but so rights would trump that even if it were true that women cavort with demons in the middle of the night and it somehow causes bad weather, we still wouldn't do it because we have a deeper principle of, of human flourishing and, and, and equal rights. But, but nevertheless, um, Often, I think a lot of moral problems are just factual errors. People just think this is a good way to treat people, and it's not. Or this is this is going to have this particular effect, and it won't. Um, so, uh, as my friend Sam Harris said, Shari- you know, the, these, the, these Sharia ideas—this is Islam—is the motherload of bad ideas. Was the phrase he used. Uh, on bill Maurer 's show, and I think you know I know what he was talking about. he was talking about some of these ideas, so just a few of the percentages why i 'm slightly concerned about the moral arc bending backwards just a little bit here uh, in some areas um, and these are percentage of Muslims um, that who favor enshrining Sharia law, and so i 'm just sort of putting these up as just to get get a general sense that this is not a tiny handful of bad apples. Uh, uh, that that we don't really have to worry about it, it is something to be concerned about here's uh, the, the the higher support for Sharias it, it, it's higher where there's um, where Islam is the officially favored religion again 99 percent in Afghanistan 91 percent in Iraq 89 percent in you know Palestinian Malaysia 86 these are these are non-trivial numbers those who believe that Sharia uh, is the revealed, uh, word of God versus just created by humans. You can see the right side is much darker and bigger than the left side. Um, and uh, and then corporal punishment uh, for crimes such as theft. And uh, so, again, this is going backwards against the enlightenment idea. Or those who believe in stunni- uh, punishment for adultery. Not the guys, mind you. Just, you know, how it works. Or Sharia. um uh, those who support the Sharia idea of executing those who leave Islam on the right, for example, corporal punishments and so on. Now, I know some of these canings and, and, and whippings are, are kind of symbolic. You can see these on YouTube where, you know, the guy's just sitting there bent over and they just sort of tap them like that. Okay, so it's not really punishment. But, but, but there are ones where it really happens, where it actually is really p- painful and destructive. And, and the idea here is that um, that the moderates are enabling the extremists by holding the same beliefs. Yes, I believe in Sharia law. I wouldn't personally stone somebody to death for adultery, but but I believe in Sharia law. Well, but somebody else who says, "Well, I believe it too," but I just think we should actually execute somebody. Well, that so it's a it's a small step once you believe the bad idea, and that's that's why I think we should be focused on these bad ideas. To that, we should say nine. That uh, you shall not murder our freedoms. Uh, this is the this was the Berliner Courier the day after the happening, and in and the Independent uh, had this really powerful. You've probably seen hundreds of these now. They're all European. There there were no American press that were doing anything remotely like this. And uh, so, in the land of free speech, people are terrified about offending people, and I think. I think that's a concern. It's, it's a debatable subject. In any case, I like this one yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We're just going to keep criticizing bad ideas, and we're going to publish the very things you don't want people to see, uh, you know, and that's how we make progress. Okay, so um, sort of the second part of the talk here is explaining what caused all this good news. There, You know, I'm, I'm willing to acknowledge there's potential setbacks, but for the most part, the arc is... So, it begins with an evolutionary model that is the expanding moral sphere that begins at concern for the self and your immediate kin and kind, and then going out to your extended family and then out to your fellow in group members. Um, So, a basic evolutionary model gets us out to the yellow portions of the curve, no problem. That is, the first moral principle is to help your kin and kind, and the second moral principle is uh, reciprocity, I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. Okay, so that takes care of everybody we're related to or everybody we know. That is, your genes are more likely to be propagated into the future by helping somebody else who's either genetically related to you or is a friend or somebody that will help you when you're in need, so you should help them when they're in need. And, and that's all been worked out mathematically by the evolutionary biologists. Um, and then I mentioned that we have the dark side, the, you know, the bullies and the free riders and so on. So I, we need to adjust that and show that we actually have a dual nature uh, of good and evil, fairness and justice, helping and hurting, cooperative and competitive, altruistic and greedy. As, as uh, Steve Pinker says, we have better angels and inner, inner demons. And so now I'm gonna show you a video clip that I think nicely captures this dual nature that we have. That is a sense of wanting to help somebody and also a sense of wanting to not, not hurt somebody, but, but impose justice on somebody who hurt somebody else. So one day I I stumbled across this short video clip. It's only about 20 seconds long uh, when I wasn't watching cat videos. (laughs) And uh, so what you're going to see here is these three people are talking. I don't even know where this is. I I think it's in Europe somewhere. And the guy on the left reaches out and shoves this woman backwards. And she sort of stumbles back. And the guy in the middle kind of reaches out to grab her and he misses her. And into the pit she goes. Now you would think you know his helping instinct would go in, and it does. He starts to like, op- then he stops, and, and then another urge bubbles up, like that no good bastard, and he just cold cocks this guy, twice, and then you see him kind of like, uh, there was something I was else I was supposed to do, oh yeah, and then he runs over and pulls her out of the pit. Uh, And then he says something to her like are you okay or whatever and the moment she acknowledges he then goes back after this guy So you'll see that and I'll show it twice because there's also a guy at the top of the screen Who looks like he's running to go help this woman and then all of a sudden no he he turns and chases this guy Okay, so here here we go See you (laughs) Again, watch it, watch it again. So it's like, I've got a, I got, are you okay? Yes, all right, let me get this guy and the other guy, you into the, it's worth seeing a second time. Oh, bam. And then, wait, there was something else. Oh yeah. And the guy takes off and this guy, he goes after him. Are you okay? Yep, okay, boom. So, I, so we have this dual sense of, uh, we have a sense of justice. Things have to be made right. Somebody wrongs you, they need to be taught a lesson or punished for this. This is part of our nature. And uh, and of course, we have a sense of helping and altruism and all that stuff. Here's another video clip that shows this, why I make the argument that this is part of our nature. Evolved, these are capuchin monkeys. This is an experiment by Franz de You may have seen this before uh, in which, um, uh, so, these capucha monkeys are taught just classically, con- classically conditioned to associate these little pebbles that they give them with food that they like. Uh, so it's like money. So they, they're they given a pebble, so it's like I got a dollar, and then they have to give the pebble back and they get a, uh, a cucumber or a grape. So they like grapes better than cucumbers because, you know, who doesn't? And uh, they're much <laughs> tastier, uh, but they'll work, they'll work for the cucumber. And there's also, by the way, I write about in, in uh, the, Mind of the market that there's, uh, you know, supply and demand. Uh, curve that goes along with this—that if there's if they have way more of the supply, that the, the, way way more of the demand, the supply changes and so on according to the same curves. So these are deeply ingrained instincts. So, uh, but then what you'll see is that the one on the left he changes the rock and he gets his cucumber and he's happy about it. Then the one on the right exchanges his rock and he gets a grape. Then the one on the left sees that he got the grape and for the same price that he only got a cucumber for. And then he's given the cucumber again, and then you see he's not too happy about this.
2: getting grape, and you will see what happens. So she gives a rock to us. That's the task. And we give her a piece of cucumber, and she eats it. The other one needs to give a rock to us. And that's what she does. And she gets a grape. And she eats it. The other one sees that. She gives a rock to us now, gets again cucumber. She tests the rock now against the wall, she needs to give it to us.
1: And she gets cucumber again. So, we, we all have this instinct and I can prove it to you. I will just ask you this thought question. Uh, have you ever fantasized about killing someone you don't like? Come on, show your hands, how many of you have? Be honest, come on. <laughs> That's right, almost all of us have. This is the research from David Buss, uh, reporting in his book, The Murderer Next Door, Why the Mind is Designed to Kill. Uh, and so here's the data set he presents, males versus females frequently thinking about it, or just occasionally. So men are about twice as likely as as women to frequently think about killing somebody. Uh, But the women sort of almost catch up there on the occasional. Uh, He provides some rather colorful examples of this. Like one guy said he went 80% of the way toward killing a former friend and now a jealous rival. First I would break every bone in his body, starting with his fingers and toes, slowly making my way to the larger ones. Then I would puncture his lungs and maybe a few other organs. Basically give him as much pain as possible before killing him. A woman said she went 60% of the way toward killing an ex-boyfriend who threatened to make public their sex video. I actually did this. I invited him over for dinner, and as he was in the kitchen looking stupid, peeling the carrots to make a salad, I came to him laughing gently so he wouldn't suspect anything. I thought about grabbing a knife quickly and stabbing him in the chest repeatedly until he was dead. I actually did the first thing, but he saw my intentions and ran away. (laughs) All right, so, uh, you know, Buss's point that the mind was designed to kill is, is because uh, we have this deep instinct uh, for wanting revenge for people that wrong us. And uh, as, as Pinker says in The Better Angels of Our Nature, uh, the, the problem is not that we don't have enough morality, it's that there's too much morality, too much moralizing. That is, most homicides, for example, about 90% of homicides are moralistic in nature. The victim deserved to die. So, in this sense, Um, we all want justice and if there's not a civil state with courts and so forth to adjudicate disputes and and properly execute justice then we're gonna do it ourselves and that's called self-help justice so where states are weak or where the people in a community don't believe that the law enforcement is fair or that the courts are fair they undertake justice themselves and that leads to an increase in violence so one of the reasons that our rates of homicides are about eight times higher than europe, theirs is about one per hundred thousand ours is about eight per hundred thousand is because we have well a a lot of guns and b uh, illegal drugs and so if uh, some other rival gang in, um, it, you know violates your turf or your deal you had with them, you can't go to the police and go, that guy is selling illegal drugs and and I'm supposed to be selling the illegal drugs. here. So you have to settle it yourself and that leads to increases in crime. So my argument is that ever since the uh, scientific revolution and the enlightenment, uh, we've been applying the methods of science to solving social problems. That is crime is a problem to be solved. Um, homicides are a problem to be solved. War is a problem to be solved. and. And these guys were all scientists. Now, they didn't call themselves that because that word wasn't even used. It wasn't even invented until the mid-1800s. They were natural philosophers, but uh, if you, I have a whole chapter on this. They were all inspired by Newton and Galileo and William Harvey and all the great scientists of the scientific revolution. They wanted to do in their fields what those guys did in physics and biology. That is, apply the methods of science to solving economic, political, and social problems. <laughs> One of which was the Leviathan State. So Thomas Hobbes' book is, well, it's called one of the most important political books ever written, that, that the Leviathan is us. It's a social contract. It's a body of people. Uh, and uh, and so we endowed the state um, with a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. So this explains a lot. Why, why did Ferguson happen? Never a good idea to reach inside a cop's car and grab his gun. That's a violation of the monopoly and legitimate use of force. And so there's really only one result that's gonna happen with that. And that's why those kinds of things happen. If the citizens don't feel that the police are fair, then you have conflicts like that. But what the Leviathan state does is it decreases incentives for exploitative attack. It reduces the need for deterrence and vengeance. It replaces self-help justice with criminal justice and replaces the culture of honor with the culture of law. In other words, we need a shadow of enforcement to make sure that we are nice to one another and moral. You can't rely, sorry, thank you. You can't rely on the uh, on, our, on human nature alone. So a public goods experiment on altruistic punishment is very instructive in this regard. You may be familiar with some of these experiments. So just imagine you're one of these players at a table, round table. Each of, each of four players gets $10, say 10 $1 bills. And, the, the, ta- and the, uh, the offing there is that you can make an anonymous contribution to the commons. You can put however much you want into the into the envelope there anonymously and no one knows how much you gave. Now what I'm gonna do is um, whatever amount is in there, uh, I'm gonna multiply by 1.5 uh, for the common total and then distribute it equally amongst everybody. So let's say all four of you give 10 bucks. So we multiply that by four, so that's uh, $40 times then we divide it equally amongst the four of us, so we each get 15 bucks, we're all $5 richer, okay? Now, what happens is if there's trans, if it's no transparency, it's anonymous, and there's no way to punish free riders, uh, here's what happens. Let's say A decides I'm not gonna put 10 bucks in, I think I'll put five bucks in, but the other three players, B, C, and D, each give $10, so what happens is, is you got $35 times 1.5 is 52 bucks divided by 4 is $13.12 each. But now A has $18.12 because he kept his five. In other words, if you, if you free ride the system, you cheat just a little bit, uh, you can gain an advantage over other people. Do people really do that? Oh, yes. <laughs> they certainly do. On the left side of the graph is the data showing... Contributions over six rounds declined fairly quickly. In other words, as soon as somebody does it and somebody does it, then everybody else sees, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm not getting as much as I you know, put in. Somebody held some back, I'm gonna hold some back. And then everybody else, and then it cascades. On the right side of the graph, Fair and Gactor, the scientists that did this experiment, they added an, an element of transparency. We know who gave how much, and then an opportunity to punish them afterwards. All of a sudden, people got very generous, pro-social, cooperative, and nice with one another. Uh, in other words, we need a, need a civil society based on the rule of law. Justicia has these symbols for a reason. Um, the uh, scales for fair balance, the blindfold, so it's not a, a biased justice system, it, but the sword to enforce the rules. So we need those. Now, of course, we're libertarians here, and we, we don't like any governments. but I think that's too general. It's like saying religion's the problem. It's too general. Some religions are better than others. Same thing with Leviathan states. Uh, most of the, 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 the killings of murders of civilians by, by, by governments uh, happen in by, by just three of the worst uh, Leviathans in the 20th century. So it's not, not fair to say that. In fact, it was Rudy Rommel who first kind of made the distinction between his first book, Death by Government, tallying up how many people have been murdered by their own governments it's staggering it's it's in the hundreds of millions but then he showed democracy as a method of nonviolence some some governments are better than others so this was first put forth by immanuel kant in his um, book ironically titled, titled perpetual peace in which he said uh, that, that that sort of the triangle of peace democracy trade and and membership in international community and this was has been confirmed by many social scientists, political scientists. Russ and O'Neill tested this. For example, oops, using the correlates of war projects of 2,300 militarized interstate disputes from 1816 to 2001, plus the polity project that assigned a, a you know, one to 10 scale for each democracy found uh, that um, when both countries are fully democratic, conflicts between them decrease by 50%. When the less democratic member of a pair leaned toward autocracy, Conflicts increased by 100%. So the formula was basically as democracies increase, violence decreases. So this is an interesting set because it's is a sliding scale. You can't just say no two democracies ever fight each other. Yes, they do. But they're just less likely to fight than autocracies. And so you can see what happened as the decline of the, the dotted line is the decline of uh, wars, interstate and societal conflicts, just at the time when democracies over uh, surpassed autocracies in the number of states in the in the world around 1992. Um, and, of course, we, we all love this one, that, that the second element of the triangle of peace is trade. Trade is good because plunder is zero-sum. It costs money to steal people's stuff. I mean, Canada has a lot of nickel. We could can invade Canada, it's an open border, and just take their nickel. Uh, but it's really cheaper to just buy it. Uh, trade is non-zero, as you know, and improving technology allows trade of good and ideas over longer distances, lowers the price, larger number of people are able to benefit from it. But but more of the point, not the economic model, but the moral concern is that other people then become more valuable alive than dead. So it's, it's just cheaper to buy it from somebody rather than killing them and taking it. Uh, and so we've seen a result of this. Uh, again, I'm not so concerned about the hockey stick of wealth, although... Um, We like to point that out, that that's a good thing for a lot of reasons. That's the projection of the world GDP from a little over 6,000 to double of that by 2030. Uh, I found this graph from an economist at Stanford projecting into the 21st century about how much richer everybody will be. Uh, So, I mean, he's projecting that the 21st century will see more wealth accumulated than all previous centuries combined. So that will have all sorts of salubrious effects for life in general, but my point here is no, I, I, I should probably point out because of the income inequality debate is, is a popular one. Um, it's true that the rich have gotten richer. This is the, the, the right side of the curve is the top uh, a t- top top quintile. So if you if you break them down into four parts, you can see that the, the super rich are getting super richer and the rich are getting richer. But notice what's not happened in the bottom four quintile. They didn't get poor. They got richer by 49%, 37%, 36%, and 45%. So although this is a debatable topic, I know, uh, but it's, again, it's not as bad as it seems. Uh, de- uh, poverty will be extinguished probably by about 2030 to 2050 uh, according to the Gates Foundation that tracks this, compared to 1820 when 94% of the world lived in, po- uh, abject, in poverty and 84% in abject poverty, extreme poverty. So that's moral progress. And then so if you put all these together, democracy, trade, and then the third one is membership in intergovernmental organizations. Russ and O'Neill counted the number of IGOs that every pair of nations jointly belonged to and ran a regression analysis with democracy and trade scores and found that democracy favors peace, trade favors peace, and membership in intergovernmental organizations favors peace. So a a pair of countries that are in the top 10th of the scale on all three variables are 83% likely less likely than an average pair of countries to have a militarized dispute in a given year. And that's the chart tracking the number of membership countries and memberships of intergovernmental organizations. And that's the triangle of peace increases the probability of peace. And you can see it testing a good test case using the comparative method, North Korea versus South Korea. You can see the difference between a democracy and an autocracy from space. You can see it in their height, uh, about two to three inches shorter crappy diets from low income. And the difference in their per capita GDP of uh, 19,600 versus 1,100. How would you like a 1,750% raise in your standard of living? So to conclude, um, because these are in part economic arguments, which I'm not making. I'm making a different argument that, uh, I'm making an is-odd argument. That if we know that spreading democracies is good because they're better than autocracies, then that's what we ought to do. We ought to be working to expand trade, like with Cuba. What a good idea. Uh, and and spread democracies wherever we can. And democracies place more emphasis on individual rights and individual liberty than any other form of governance. Uh, so one last point on that, because I have a whole, a whole discussion in my first chapter of What's the foundation of right and wrong? How do you know something is moral or immoral? So I start with the individual. It's the individual sentient being, an individual that can suffer and feel pain. Uh, Races don't suffer, individuals suffer. Races don't have brains, or genders don't have brains. People have brains that suffer. Races don't vote, genders don't vote. Minorities vote, women vote, people vote. They're people, individuals. It's the individual that counts. And I actually make an evolutionary argument because natural selection operates on the individual, not the group. So I kind of debunked the group selection model. That's a minor wrinkle in all this. So in conclusion, the constitutions of human society ought to be built on the constitution of human nature. And I conclude with another quote from Martin Luther King Jr. about this dual nature we have. Each of us is two selves. The great burden of life is to always try to keep that higher self in command. And every time that old lower self acts up and tells us to do wrong, let us allow that higher self to tell us that we were made for the stars created for the everlasting, born for eternity. Well, we are in fact made from the stars. Our atoms were forged in the interiors of ancient stars that ended their lives in spectacular paroxysms of supernova explosions that dispersed those atoms into space wherever they coalesced into new solar systems with planets, life, and sentient beings capable of such sublime knowledge and moral wisdom. That's the final sentences from my book. We are stardust, we are golden, we are billion-year-old carbon. You know the reference, right? (laughs) So morality is something that carbon atoms can embody given a billion years of evolution. That's the moral arc. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Michael. Uh, we'll uh, take some questions now. The book is The Moral Arc, and we have copies outside, although, if we run out, it is available at all fine bookstores and all fine online booksellers. Um, we will, uh, uh, I'll, ask, I'll let Michael call on people to ask questions. Please wait for a microphone to get there okay, um, and then announce your name and affiliation. And, uh, well,
1: there was that guy. And then you can do. Maybe start with this one then. No, we got it. Oh, we got it. Okay.
0: Hi, my name's Dave Price, retired educator and journalist. Michael, you lay out such a good case, okay, and yet people don't believe it. <laughs> um, so, while it's not really necessarily your area of expertise, I'd just be interested to know why you think that is so. Uh, is it religion that they're holding on to? Is it, the, you know, the fact of, you know, we hear things about the 24-7 news cycle that only emphasize certain things. Um, you know, obviously we can eliminate those who believe in Sharia law. But I'm just talking the, the average person. I mean, mm-hmm. very convincing argument. So why doesn't 100 or why do not 100% of the people buy it?
1: Yes. Uh, well, uh, Pinker gave a beautiful talk here just, I think, a few months ago, right, David, uh, on on that very question. And uh, so I agree with him that, you know, it's in part it's a byproduct of the nature of, of the news media and blogs and so forth that they report on the bad news. No one reports that, you know, here we are standing in front of a school and there wasn't one shooting today. You know, the helicopters are standing by to, you know, flop, flop, flop over the schools, right? So you're only gonna hear the bad news. And then we've evolved this propensity to be more concerned about bad things than good things. Uh, so, you know, most of us are uh, risk averse. We have loss aversion. Uh, the way it's phrased by, um, by economists is that losses hurt twice as much as gains feel good. Uh, so this has all sorts of implications for investing in the stock market and stuff like that. People are mostly risk averse. And uh, so, it, but it probably paid in our evolutionary past to be more focused on things that could take us out of the gene pool rather than things that make us feel you know that much better and uh, because natural selection would have just uh, selected for that. Uh, and, and so uh, th- those are the two sort of underlying things. I don't think it's really religion per se, I think I think there is a a sense also that built into that that whatever team you're on, whatever your ideology is, you always want the other guys to not be doing as well uh and, and because then that makes our side looks good, and also for fundraising for nonprofits it's you know you can't send a letter out going, boy, things are so good and getting better, really we don't really need your money that much, but we hope you send some in for you know overhead and payroll you know, that's not going to do it. no, you know people are starving and dying and war and slavery, and it's it's bad and getting worse and Anyway, I know because I I run a nonprofit. And, you know, I can't say things are so rational and science is so perfect. No, no, I can't. Anyway,
3: <laughs> yeah. Uh, congratulations on another excellent book. Uh, Thank look you. Forward to doing a review of it, probably not for your magazine. That might be a conflict of interest. <laughs> yeah,
1: just a little bit. <laughs> but Anyway,
3: uh, but uh, my question is this: uh, since Martin Luther King made his famous "I Had a Dream" speech here in uh, in D.C. on the Mall. 400,000 blacks have been killed by other blacks. Now, again, there's a demographic issue because as, you know, as, as the population's age, you can actually see the crime rate going down across groups. However, you do see underlying some value issues. If you take a look at Ferguson, yes, police brutality is outrageous, whether that was a case of it or not. But I wanted to ask a question about, do you see an underlying value problem that could uh, stifle future progress. And by the way, I I might suggest that it's the same value problem both that causes rioting in Ferguson, that causes inner city pathologies, and that causes police to be pretty irresponsible in beating people up and doing terrible things.
1: What would be the same value?
3: Uh, Actually, the same value would be kind of a negligence for individual uh, uh, autonomy uh, and so forth. Uh, It would be a personal irresponsibility uh, that I'm not responsible for myself, uh, you know, th- th- there, there are a number of these factors, but I see that there's some underlying yep. uh, uh, common factor. But
1: certainly, even if you want to take yep.
3: different, there there clearly are factors on both sides that are causing yep.
1: these problems. I, I generally try to look at those things as problems to be solved rather than let's impose a value statement in which we're giving our opinions about blacks or whatever. Um, So how can the question is how can we stop those kinds of things from happening? Well, we already have been doing that quite a bit. I mean, police, most most police have sensitivity training and gun training and and, and so forth. But what happens and we should never generalize from like a particular case that this is the way all police are, which is exactly what happened after Ferguson, every case is different. You know, the Ferguson case was a little bit different than the Long Island case, which is a little bit different than the North Carolina case. In North Carolina, by the way, the grand jury did vote to uh, try that that cop. So it's not like they never do that because it's a racist society. It happens uh, all the time. Um, so, But in the case of Ferguson, you have a couple of different things going on. So probably in a lot of these inner cities where um, – maybe the there is a little bit of racism in the police department maybe the local black kids are tired of being you know sort of profiled and targeted and bullied by the police and maybe they've just had it maybe michael brown walking down the street he's in the middle of the street and the cop said move over to the sidewalk you know we don't i don't think we know exactly how he said it or what he said it but in any case it triggered no i'm not so then all of a sudden now you have this problem of well, we're the law enforcement. You you have to do what we say, and if we if you don't, then we have a you know there's a social problem because we're the enforcers of the rules. If somebody doesn't enforce the rules, then you have chaos. So that that tension just builds up. But as I said, the moment you reach for a cop's gun, it's over. You're you, you're going to you're very likely to be shot just because at that point there's something called forward panic kicks in. Forward panic is a sociologist term for. Uh, it's it's sort of like the amygdala and the limbic system of your brain just, boom, floods your whole brain with, uh, you know, the fight or flight syndrome. Just uh, uh, hormones just kick in and it is survival time. And uh, it's like the, the, the classic example is the uh, Rodney King beating on the 210 freeway in Southern California. You know, just like a pack of wolves. Well, this was the culmination of a long series of things that happened that got these cops all riled up where, you know, the frontal cortex that controls the bubbling urges from beneath to... You know to, to, to be super emotional normally we keep those in check we don't say what we really think to somebody on the phone or you know whatever we just keep it in check but that that can be overridden and so that's probably what happened in the case of Ferguson uh, I think the other cases are slightly different so now the deeper causes. okay so maybe some uh, you know maybe some poverty maybe some uh, uh, some racism but probably deeper is um, just the, the the lack of consistency of enforcement of the laws in the inner cities, perhaps, uh, and maybe I would go for fa- some family issues. You know, this the breakdown of, um, of uh, you know, no, no, no fatherhood, no, no fathers in the homes of a lot of the, the black kids. I think it's something like two or three times worse than it was than when um, Moynihan first published that work. I think it was twenty-five percent were raised without fathers. Now it's sixty-something. Yeah. So I think that's probably a different one, although that's politically incorrect to say. But I think if we're just looking for causes of events to change things, I think that's one. Uh, how about this woman here with the mic- microphone coming?
3: I'm um, Janice Walt Grenadier. I've just started a group, Pro Se America. And we're What's it called again? Pro se America. Pro se? Pro se America. And we're disclosing um, the judiciary, the government, and elected officials who break the oath of office. And we basically have a wall of shame for each one out of each state. And the question is, why can't they just stand up and say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake? <laughs> why is it yes. that the cover-up? <laughs> Just like with Nixon, he didn't resign because of the crime. It was the cover-up. And the cover-ups are so huge and ridiculous.
1: First of all, I'm glad you're doing that. You know, that's that's one way of, of controlling free riders and bullies and other people that don't play nice is uh, shame them.
3: Right. It's, it, it, we don't have a choice.
1: Now, it's, we have to be careful about that. You can shame people on online unfairly or something like that, internet bullying. But for the most part, uh, the answer to your question is Carol Tavers' book called mistakes were made but not by me <laughs> uh you know the the sort of the third per- person reference the you know the indirect action uh you know so, something happened here and uh, you know uh, i'm sorry if you misinterpreted what you think i said that i didn't say you know that, those kinds of uh, you know half-assed apologies we all recognize them for what they are okay so the answer is cognitive dissonance that the moment you're committed to a particular thing you're doing, a belief system or an action, or you, you start down that road, it's almost impossible for any of us to back out and change our mind and just admit we were wrong. It, it's just really hard psychologically. Carol explains in this book why that is. Uh, the cognitive distance was discovered by a guy named Leon Festinger, psychologist who discovered this when he went to the top of a mountain with a UFO cult in 1954 in Chicago to wait for the mothership to come you know, on December 21st at midnight. And so he was curious, what will happen when the mothership doesn't come? <laughs> and uh, so he thought, well, I wonder if to all go, pooh, that was dumb, get, you know, that was a stupid idea. No, in fact, they did the opposite. They ratcheted up the intensity of their belief and just rationalized it. Well, we miscalculated, it's, you know, it's tomorrow night. Then they, 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 the mothership didn't come the next, no, it's next year, we forgot to carry the one or whatever. Um, you know, and so all Doomsday cults do this. Uh, they, they, they rationalize why they aren't wrong. And I think it may get back to this loss aversion thing. It's just, it hurts to be wrong. And we would rather, you know, spin doctor for ages, you know, why we're not wrong, and that ends up costing us more. It's counterintuitive, it's irrational, but people do it.
3: Um, the one thing I would like to say is that we are allowing people, if they come to us and say it was a mistake, to reverse.
1: Well, good. I, ho- I hope that's, that's the I case. Think it's and, only and, fair. and actually, you can show where, you know, politicians that do admit it, they, they actually profit from that. I mean, celebrities that do something stupid and they go on The Tonight Show and laugh about it and apologize and you know, they, they tend to carry on, things are okay. I, I, we, we need to hype, hype that more. Uh, let's see, so how about here? Yes, uh, my name is Phil, I'm from Hope College. Uh, I was just gonna ask you if you believe there's um, a causal correlation between the moral arc bending towards justice and um, a more connected society through technology. Do you think that there's empathy there or do you think that it's, it's isolating yep. in some way? So the question on um, the arc bending in part because of uh, technology. so Well, starting with um, book publications and increasing literacy rates all the way up to the internet, I think this is part of it. So I, wanna, I have a whole chapter on um, what uh, Pinker calls the moral Flynn effect. The Flynn effect is IQ scores are going up three points every 10 years on abstract reasoning portions of the IQ test for about a century. It's quite amazing. So, by the way, we're counting on you, young students, uh, to uh, solve those problems like Alzheimer's before we hit the uh, us baby boomers hit the wall. <laughs> and uh, uh, but in short, uh, that th- the increase in the ability to reason abstractly uh, is in part uh, one of the drivers of moral progress because morality has to do with interchangeable perspective and being able to reason your way to overriding your emotional impulses. And we seem to be getting better at that. And I think literacy. I have a data data set toward the end of the book on. Um, in, I mean, in the first chapter to the end of that chapter on experiments with people that read a lot of literature and their ability to mind read, read other people's minds, facial expressions, interpret what they are, and a few other tasks that has to do with the ability for you to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and, and sense what they're, they're thinking and feeling. And so the idea is that the moment you start a novel, you're looking at the world through the characters in the novel. It's not you anymore. Your, your brain has been transposed into this fictional character's brain. And now you're that person looking at the world. And that that retrains the brain in a positive way. So I think all those technologies that do that is good. Let's go with, uh, how about this person right here? Yep. And then I'll go to the back again.
0: Thank you. uh, Thomas Sir, I'm actually a fan. I enjoy uh, your various other books. Uh, I'm I'm in biotech. Uh, You're making a historical argument about the moral arc. I wonder if you've speculated about any structural underpinnings for why that may be the case if it's true. I mean, obviously, there are historical answers like religion, theology, etc., but uh, I've wondered about Axelrod's experiment, you know, why under certain circumstances, tit for tat is the winning strategy vis-a-vis other strategies. Why do you think that the moral arc bends toward justice if, in fact, it historically seems to be
1: doing that? Um, well, I, I, I touched on some of it, the, just the invention of rights, the enlightenment emphasis on let's, let's treat these things as problems to be solved using science and reason rather than the glory of the nation or, you know, some other just emotional aspect of the human condition. And, and that transition took centuries, but that, that's underway. So I think that's one of the underlying ones. Now, of course, political and economic changes are underlying some of that, too. But even that those... Are uh, are rational reason through scientifically testable ideas, and just showed you how why democracies are better, how how much democracies are better than autocracies and the effects that they cause, using data. Uh, so we ought to do more of that. Uh, but even economics, um, I didn't mention the the physiocrats, the fa- French physiocrats, all pattern themselves after uh, these these scientists in the scientific revolution. Um, they, 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 in fact, they, they consciously in, in, uh, made an analogy with William Harvey's circulation of the blood, that money circulating through an economy is like blood circulating through a human body, and there's if things constrict it or, or block it, it's not healthy for the body. Too much government restriction on the economy uh, blocks the flow of capital through a, a country and and impedes economic progress and so on. Those are all arguments made from a rational scientific perspective, like. We should just treat the economy as a problem. It's just a scientific problem. Let's figure out the best way to structure it so that we're all more prosperous. That, I would argue, is, is, one of, is really the big driver more than anything else. Okay, let's go with, uh, to the back there. You, sir.
2: Thank you very much for your book. My name is Hermes from OWS. I just wanted to see what will be your comment on this uh, statement that says that moral is a figurative language of passions?
1: I'm afraid I lost that. I didn't get that last part.
2: Uh, the statement said moral is a figurative language of
1: passions. Yes, moral is figurative l- language and passions of of passions of passions. Yes. Okay, what I'm talking about is that we uh, evolved moral emotions. So emotions are but emotions evolved as just uh, proxies to drive an organism to do something, to behave in a certain way. So you don't have to compute calories and so on, you just feel hungry. and And that emotion of hunger drives you to seek out food. Um, and the, the, the species has to propagate itself through sex, so you know we have a sexual drive. Emotions, just feelings, like you don't have to calculate the curves and waist-to-hip ratios like the evolutionary psychologists study. You don't have to do any of that. You just look around and go, wow, I like that, and I just have this feeling and so on. So hunger, the sexual impulse, these are all just basic emotions that drive organisms selected by natural selection. Moral emotions are the same way. Jealousy is an emotion to lead people to, sit, to make guard so that your, your genetic contribution is not compromised by a violation of your relationship with your significant other. Anger is an emotion that we, you know, we showed to, to deal with injustices and unfairness and people that wanna cheat you. You really have to strike back. As Dawkins points out, the difference between kicking a rock and kicking another organism is the other organism will kick back. So you have to be careful about you know, what you're kicking and who you're kicking. And so those emotions are there for a reason. So I, I, I treat things like violence and homicide not like as a defect in our nature. It's part of our nature. You don't wanna get rid of that. You have to be able to stand up and, and, and fight back. That's part of be, you know, being a social primate. Uh, but the whole point of a civil society is to structure it in a way that it, it keeps in check the sort of violent impulses that overrun things and, and cause too many problems and, and, and attenuate the good things, make people more cooperative. Okay, let's go with you, sir, right there.
2: Hi, Ben Wright. I'm a member of uh, National Capillary Skeptics. One thing that uh, pains me to read about is the belief in witchcraft, which is still very strong in many parts of Africa. It leads to kidnapping children for their body parts, and uh, a lot of people. Uh, and but but the basic idea that keeps a lot of them poor is that if someone suddenly succeeds, the people around them not succeeding think it's because they've stolen their good luck from them. And and seriously, this goes way back in the literature of the area. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking when Europe finally got away, I think it wasn't just that they started thinking we really shouldn't burn old women. We really shouldn't drown strange people. You could read in, in the Discovery of uh, in some of the trials, the judges basically didn't believe that witchcraft was a real phenomenon. Mm-hmm. They were beginning to think scientifically, mm-hmm. and so yep. can 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 just reflect on. I mean, this this was science. Yeah, I have society. a
1: story in in my book about um, this German, uh, that mayor of the town or whatever he was, ma- magistrate of this German town. Uh, who started thinking like you that, you know, maybe this witchcraft thing is, you know, maybe this is a bunch of baloney, and maybe torturing these women is not such a good idea. But his two Jesuit priests in charge of the torture and the, the, the whole Inquisition, charge of the Inquisition, they, they were total believers. So he took the two of them down to where they had this woman who was being tortured. And he, he brought them in there and said, you know, lady, I have strong feelings that these two men here are warlocks. I, I think they might have been cavorting with Satan. Um, you know, Executioner, crank up the, you know, the, the, the torture wheel just a little bit more. What do you say, ma'am? What do you think? Oh yes, I have seen both of them. They were cavorting with the devil, they turned into goats, and she went on and on, and they were standing there going, oh. Uh, he said, you still think this is a good idea? So that was like an early experiment. <laughs> Test the hypothesis, yeah. Um, And he wrote a book about that, and that started the um, abolition of of witchcraft in the the European witch craze. Anyway, so that's – as for are there still witches, yes, of course. where there impoverishment, uh, lack of education, superstition? So the solution to those African countries, get them all wealthier so they can afford education, and that will all just go away.
0: Let's take one more question. One more
1: question. Okay, how about, uh, about you, sir, right there?
3: Richard Kennedy, retired CA analyst. Uh, I noticed Mr. Bose didn't mention one of the earlier books, Why People Believe Weird Things, which is one of my all-time favorites. Oh, thank you. Uh, my avocation in retirement is trying to get marijuana legalized in Virginia. That was pretty clear when I was in graduate school that it's a less dangerous drug than alcohol or tobacco. I just mm-hmm. wonder if, from your perspective, all the work you've done, is there any reason there why it's taken so long for that Fact to seep into the general
1: consciousness. Yeah, it's just social and political, and you know, there's sort of a Puritan streak through there. But then, why alcohol? It's all very inconsistent. And what's you know, again, once you go down this path, like the cognitive dissonance, you know, we've always we've been against it for you know half a century. The laws and so on. Too committed to the war on drugs. You know, why not just say we lost, change our minds? Because people rarely just change their minds and say I was wrong. I do think that's going to come about. I think the decriminalization of marijuana is probably next, you know, after the gay rights, and then, and then us atheists. You know, that's you know, it's not that I feel oppressed. I live in L.A. I mean, come on, uh, but, but the, you you hear these tropes about you know atheists don't have morals and they can't they shouldn't be citizens. You know, this kind of crazy. You know, we need to debunk those silly myths. But that's all happening fairly quickly. So you'll get there. And I gave you biblical passages in support. Yes.
2: <laughs> we do have a decriminalization bill. That-
1: Senate this year. So. Oh, okay, good. Oh, great. All right. Thank you, Michael.
0: Thank you all for being here. Thank you for coming.